He who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. Welcome back to this week's episode of Honestly Unorthodox. I am so excited to have everybody back because today we are talking about a long-standing debate, specifically now with the educational institutions of the world, uh, whether they're captured or they're taking on insane curriculums. People are moving more towards homeschooling, unschooling, or trying to figure out if school choice is an option. So today I have with me Kate. Good morning. I have Dominique. Hello. And we will wait to see if our friend Adam joins us because he has great insight on this topic. So we're going to start off here with the concept of school choice. Now, typically... We go, for those of us that went to public school or for kids who go to public school, they are assigned, quote unquote, assigned a school dependent upon their district. So pretty much wherever they live, it's dependent on your your location within a certain city. But school choice talks about the ways we access K through 12 education. And a lot of parents are still trying to school to choose schools by simply buying a home in like a nice area. Do you guys think there should be more flexibility around school choice rather than only relying on moving? Yeah, definitely. I'm a proponent of, um, you know, school vouchers. Um, I have this crazy story that I love to tell whenever I'm talking about education. Okay. So, um, it, where I live, it's one of the best highly ranked school districts in definitely my state, mm-hmm. but I also think it's nationally ranked. Oh, um, nice. and yeah, that means very little. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you, mean, you mean now? Yes. Now it means little? Yeah, that, that yes. would make sense. Um, and so this is a, um... So basically, I was in the school and um, for my job, and a student had, you know, um, tr- did not read, right? Was was in special education, um, and did not even read yet. But he was sent up to Gen Ed to for social studies, and the social studies teacher was really into doing. I don't know if you guys know what OneNote is, like it's a program through Microsoft. Basically, it's kind of like Word, but you can like manipulate the screen and text boxes and stuff like that. And so he would make worksheets for the students. And like, basically, there would be fill in the bit blanks, answer the questions, all this stuff. And so when I got up to, you know, aid the students coming from uh, special ed, the teach the social studies teacher would tell to me like oh just have him you know just tell him the letters and he can like correspond on the keyboard and he'll like type in the answers and I I was like but like he can't read right like he doesn't read and and he would be like yeah no but he just like types in the answers and this was day after day after day and I would mention to the special ed director like hey you know 
he's doing this at social study, which is like an hour class. Like, shouldn't he be focused on, I don't know, reading? Um, right, right. And so uh, that's just one story. But I feel like there's so many stories of just kids. Yeah. I don't know, slipping through the cracks or like teachers not actually teaching. Um, do you think that has to do yeah. with their teaching? Like what they were taught or or their own teaching education degree? I think the higher education system of teaching is fraught because it's not focused on research-based techniques, really, as yeah. maybe we'll talk about later. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of think teachers just wing it. And I have a theory about teachers, but maybe we can get into that later. Yeah. I think they have a very... Um, I think a lot of teachers have a problem with control. And... I don't know. Thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. If you have ever witnessed a teacher say like, "This is my classroom." Yes. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, it's it's a balance too for those of us that might consult in school districts. We we always me and Adam had talked about this last week where we're we're always Mm. guests wherever we go. So there is some degree of like, I am a guest, so I'm not necessarily trying to infiltrate your classroom. Um. But that, but that mindset can make it really hard to break through and permeate the barrier of this is my class. You are only a guest here. I feel like then it becomes more focused on the roles of each person versus what we're actually supposed to be doing with the school. Kate, what do you think? Dual certified teacher here. (laughs) Oh, that's right. I forgot, Kate, that you were uh, a special ed, right? Or Uh, early childhood education and special education. Okay. Me and Kate are not friends anymore. Yeah. Please (laughs) tell me if you, if I am incorrect or inaccurate Um, in what I said. Again, generalization. You're great. (laughs) You're lovely. Everyone except you. Um, That's great. I was also a consulting BCBA. So I've, I've been on both sides of the, uh, of the room, so to speak. Um, And I would tend to agree with you. A lot of teachers are very territorial of their, of their classroom and the way that they like to do things. And um, especially having someone come in who is a kind of a guest, even if that BCBA works for the district um, and isn't coming in from an outside agency, I've I've seen teachers file grievances against um, against BCBAs because they're putting extra responsibilities on them, such as you know taking data or implementing plans or whatever it may be. Teachers feel like that's an addition to their workload that isn't part of their contract. Um, I, yeah. Do you think that is uh, at, well? I'm going to rephrase this. It is uh, extra work. Let's just, I mean, it's always going to be extra work. and Collecting this, data, perhaps. Collecting data, yeah, but sure. I, yeah. Go ahead, though. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, but maybe if, you know, if BCBAs or ABA professionals have suggestions for the teachers, such as manipulating environmental contingencies, um, it, it may actually end up being less work for the teacher. But Long term, right? Long-term, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I agree with you. So, Kate, I kind of want your insight on this then. So do you think that a big piece of not wanting to do the extra work, at least up front, because it would require extra response effort on the part of the teacher initially, do you think that that really does have to do with with BCBA's bad reputation, or are there other factors, you think? 
Um, I think it varies. I uh, I would have to, t- well, it's been a few years now and obviously the field has grown significantly. When yeah. I was first teaching, I didn't even know what a BCBA was. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't think that there was really that negative attitude towards BCBAs um, from teachers because they didn't even necessarily know who that person was in the building or what BCBA even stood for. Um, but I think it, it, it just varies by person and how much they actually want the help. Um, I've worked with teachers who have had, you know, opened their arms, you know, wide open and are like, please help me. I will do whatever you tell me to do. And then there are others who really like are, you know, listening to you because admin told them that they had to. Yeah. Adam, you're, uh, you're present, you're here, you're getting set up to really just throw it all at you at one time. Where, where do you see BCBAs in the role of consulting with a school? So I had a really good experience when I was in Connecticut. I consulted for them uh, as an outside consultant. And then I also was employee of the school as a BCBA. Hmm. And it was an interesting experience when I was consulting. I feel like the district respected our opinion a lot more because they were mm. paying us for a service. Yeah. Um, the individual teachers, they could kind of take or leave our suggestions. Um, I found that one thing that was really, really successful at kind of getting buy-in was being literally on the ground with these kids when they were having their behavior issues. Yeah. So if you're going to have a tantrum and you're going to be on the floor, I'm going to be down on the floor blocking rather than this is what you should do on my, you know, proverbial high horse. Sure. And then that got a lot of buy-in and people would, you know, assistant principals would grab me or grab one of my staff and they'd be like, oh, come on, you got to help us out with this, with that. And that was really rewarding. I felt like we were actually affecting change. Then when I went to work for the actual public school system, it flipped. They didn't really have an understanding of what a BCBA could do other than write FBAs. Yeah. So Mm. I got real good at writing (laughs) like real fast FBAs because, you know, we had a determination meeting for behavior and we don't have an FBA, so we need one. And the meeting's next week. I'm like, sure, that's fine. I have nothing else to do. So I'll just pump out an FBA. Sounds like fun. But then after that, yeah, super fun. (laughs) But then after that, there was no kind of follow through, like I would follow up for trainings and teachers wouldn't be available or, you know, they wouldn't keep that appointment. So mm-hmm. it was, it was frustrating on that regard because we've got this plan and I'm trying to have integrity. I'm trying to have fidelity. I'm trying to keep, you know, social validity going, but there was no reciprocity. Like I'm yeah. showing up or the staff members are showing up and it's just kind of falling flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Oh, Dominique, you have a look on your face. You look like you want to say something. <laughs> I, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, yeah, go for it. But I, the other thing that that I would love to get your guys' opinion on is I have, you know, a few clients who their school district or their schools or their teachers will not allow BCBA to enter the classroom. And oh, I wow. think that should be illegal. That's yeah, that's that's very violation. discriminatory and 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 an ADA violation. Absolutely. What is their reasoning? Do they provide any? You know, they'll say things like, "Well, we have a school BCBA, and we have uh, paras from our school." It disrupts and, the learning environment. And it I've heard that. Disrupts the before. learning yeah. environment, and you know, it's just 
yeah, I, I've come in contact with a lot of that and a lot of like, like, I don't know, maybe I'm a black sheep in this opinion, but like throughout my times as an RBT, like I would, you know, understand, you know, my BCBAs would be like, yeah, you're a guest in their classroom and like you, um, you know, kind of like, I don't know, like tiptoe around. Um, and I think that like, it's not their classroom, first of all, it's the taxpayers. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, Say that. They really like that. Yeah, also, tell know, police that you pay your salary. They really like that, too. Talk about buy-in. <laughs> I, I have to get um, more charismatic, I've been told, <laughs> in terms of <laughs> Really? You, yeah. Dominique? That's yeah. crazy. Um, <laughs> Honestly, just yeah. doesn't cut it anymore, does it? No, I don't know. Those are my thoughts. I'll shut up before I... I don't know. Get fired. No, keep going. Yeah, I was like, no, 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 don't stop. Let it, let it rip, Dominique. Come on, that's yeah. why we're here. All right, I right, here. I'll, I'll, I'll stoke the fire a little bit. Okay. Um, so now that I'm in Florida, they actually had to pass a law. I think it's SB two fifty five that that permits RBTs to go into the classroom as related service providers. Good. Okay. So yeah, that's this. great. It's fantastic yeah. in theory because. Um, the districts are so large, like the, the district that I live in, Hillsborough County, they're so large. It's the size of Rhode Island, essentially. So it's wow. like a state. So the superintendent and the central office people can't possibly manage everything. So they just kind of leave it up to the, you know, think of it like the mayors, the individual principals and assistant principals to implement the policies as they see fit. And there are some schools, because the principal is open to it, that we have RBTs go in and we have BCBA consult and we go in and we provide service and we collaborate and it's great. And then there are other schools where they're like, well, it's a violation of fate. I go, how is it a violation of their free and appropriate public education to allow their private BCBA to come in? Right. Well, it's because the parents are paying for it. I'm like, well, they're not because there's, they're on Medicaid, so there's no deductible. Mm -hmm. It's free to them. Yeah. And then also, well... You, we can't allow you in because we have other students. So you can take the child into a separate classroom, like a closet. Essentially, oh, like a, like a pull-out therapy versus the yeah, push in. because that's yeah. going to help. Yeah. That's going to help. Oh, so absolutely. the kid has escape, maintain behavior. So I'm going to pull him out. So I'm going to yeah. give him escape so that we can work on those. I'm not going to see him. Totally <laughs> logical. Totally logical. Oh, yeah. So those are those are the two. Oh, also, this is another one. Um, we're a closed school due to COVID. Oh. Yeah. Right. Hmm. That's, That's convenient. Uh-huh. Totally convenient. <laughs> so here in Massachusetts, yeah. our funders will not allow services to take place in a school. If you're kind of early in the early intervention realm, you can provide services in like a daycare setting. Um, but we yeah. cannot provide services in the home. But the vast majority of school districts in Massachusetts have their own BCBA and have their own exactly. RBTs. Or they contract them out and they are still considered like part of the public school's services. Okay, Same with I, Illinois. I, yeah, I think that's most like the North. Yeah. 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 I have experience with like, con like contracting, like my company, con uh, or get, you know, like schools can pay for us essentially. Mm -hmm. And I think after COVID, there was a shortage of like paras right? Especially in special ed classrooms. Yeah. And so they would pay, you know, to like my company for uh, BCBA and, you know, multiple RBTs or BTs. And mm -hmm. at least in my experience of it, it was very much like 
we paid for you, so we get to utilize you however we see fit. Uh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, so the RBTs and BTs were always referred to <laughs> this grind me and my friends' gears as PCAs. And like we were just told to like, you know, do stuff that PCAs would do. PCA um, standing for PCA? Oh, sorry. Um personal care assistant. Oh, like a babysitter. Oh yeah. 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 yeah a diaper that changer. That's what RBTs do. A diaper yeah. changer, a feed a food feeder. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so, and the BCBA, um, she was required to, it was weird. Like she was required to, um, I don't even think create BIPs for them. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have to have goals for them. Like it was very like a What did she the do way. then? So I think, I think her role was to give suggestions behavioral suggestions to the teachers take data right Hmm. for the students however the teacher wanted but the way it actually played out is that really the teacher had a very strong personality and she was great but she was just very like uh dominant and I think it like not intimidated but I think it like you know she wanted, you know, they wanted to have a good relationship. So it ended up being like the teacher would just give tasks for this uh, BCBA. Like, hey, can you create a task analysis for blah, blah, blah. And like, hey, can you do this and this? Hey, so like, the, you know, and so it was like, it was almost just like allotted because the district paid for us. Mm. So it was, yeah, I don't know. So let's tie this back to to school choice. Yeah. So let's say that a parent finds a district that allows uh, the frequent collaboration or RBTs to be in the classroom, BCBAs to be in the classroom, what have you. School choice will allow your your public education funds uh, to follow the students where the family wants them to go. What do you think could be a drawback of school choice? If any, um, I think the drawback that people would say is that some some schools mm-hmm. would get a lot of you know students and it would be over populated and influx and yeah. we would have to do a um like a lottery system and mm-hmm. then schools that you know uh, students left from would kind of go underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, but I think for that, it would, it would motivate those schools to become more competitive. Like it would be more of a competitive market, mm-hmm. which may improve outcomes you yeah. know, in schools. So I agree. Yeah. Adam, Kate, thoughts on this? I don't know specifically how school choice works uh, state to state just because of the way that things are laid out. Yeah. But one thing that I experience is, you know, they've got access to the free and appropriate public education. They can take those funds and they can bring them to another place. But again, if you have a district that's the size of the state of Rhode Island, yeah, any school is technically under their purview. So how am I supposed to get my kid to the center-based school mm-hmm. that's two hours away from where I live? Right. Are you going to bus them? In which case, those funds that are allocated for that kid are going to get depleted real, real fast. Yeah. So then how how are the people going to get paid for? So it's, it, for me, it's a confusing thing because I think it's great, but I but sometimes it's almost like they've overextended. Mm-hmm. 
like the ability for people to actually use it. Yeah. And also, I don't think people really take advantage of it. Because when you sit in a school meeting, and Kate, maybe you could refute this as a person who sat on both sides of the table. I don't really feel like sometimes the school districts are trying to do what's best for the student. They're just trying to save the most amount of money. Yeah. Yep. And it's <laughs> that's not what's in the best interest of the student. Mm-hmm. So if the, and then and if you don't ask the right question, like if you don't go in and be like, hey, can you tell me about school choice? They're going to tell you what they want you to know about school choice as opposed yes. to asking pointed questions about it and getting the right information. But how do you know the questions to ask if you're completely you've got a five year old that just got diagnosed? You have no idea what to do. You're, mm-hmm. you're a baby. In the woods. Yeah. 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 I think another common uh, argument to this might be having to do with similar to what you said, Dominique, about a huge influx of students going to maybe the uh, the more sophisticated schools, the schools that score higher on standardized measures, just generally better schools. And yeah. I think that there would be a huge uproar about, well, then what happens to lower income areas? What happens to uh, the schools that score low on standardized tests? No no parent is going to want to send their child to these schools. So what will become of them? Will they just dissolve? Uh, How will a school be able to sustain if 75% of its student body has been bussed elsewhere? I think that's something to consider too. Then they have to get better. Yeah. That's really the only choice. Yeah. And then there's the whole issue we talked about with, uh, with teachers and the education that they're getting now yeah. Uh, are they are they able to get better? Are they willing to get better? So is this a performance issue yeah. or is this a skill issue or both? So as far as teacher prep goes, at least in the special education realm, um, you know, I had I was certified in early childhood education and a master's degree in special education, and I had taught one year of second grade inclusion. And then I took on a substantially separate ABA-based preschool classroom. I was incredibly ill-equipped to teach that classroom. The only thing that saved me was the fact that I gave a shit. And <laughs> I read every book I could read. I, I gathered every resource I possibly could. I watched every YouTube video about how to set up a ABA-based classroom. Um, yeah. And I, thank God, had the para angel from heaven who under the previous teacher had had a supervising BCBA in the classroom constantly because the previous teacher was become, you know, was working towards her credential. And so Mm -hmm. in doing that, the para, you know, was kind of also on the receiving end of all of that extra, you know, behavior analytic supervision and help. And she truly is the one that, helped me set that classroom up, made sure all the kids had program books. Do you think I know what a program book was? No, nobody taught me what that was in my, you know, special education um, master's program. That wasn't a thing. Discrete trial. What's that? Right. I had no idea. And this was what the basis of this classroom was supposed to be. This was sold to parents as an ABA based classroom. Um, The BCBA was zero help whatsoever. Um, and that's why I became a BCBA because I was going to fail these kids if I didn't have that education. And I'm probably in maybe the 1% of people who, you know, (laughs) took that on. I could have just 
I was going to yeah, say, I just, you know, floated on doing what I felt was good enough. And as long as, you know, the kids were relatively safe, no one was, you know, running out of the building and parents weren't complaining. There was no real need or pressure on me to, you know, pursue um, my credential or pursue, you know, more knowledge to make that classroom what it was, you know, advertised as. Mm-hmm. Um, so... See, it's almost like, like, that's really interesting because it's almost like, you know, teachers are allowed to do suboptimal work because one, they're in a classroom with kids that are not, that do not have authority or, you know, Mm -hmm. they, 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 they're kids. So they kind of have less, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but like uh, they they can't hold the teacher accountable um, like an adult would in a company, for example. Um, yeah. Well, because so they, like, they have no idea what would be uh, t- optimal right. performance. I mean, th- yeah. these are like these innocent little kids that kind of just go along with whatever yeah. they're told. So it's also like- sometimes because they're because they have a diagnosis, the expectations yeah. of those students is pretty low as well in a lot of cases. Yeah, Absolutely. That's true. Yeah, and nobody wants to teach those classrooms. Those positions are the hardest to fill. For teachers, you mean yes. like if you look at job postings yeah. in schools, especially around here right now, yeah. you know, post COVID, especially, substantially separate classrooms are very challenging um, to fill with teachers. And why do you think you said you were so unprepared? Like, you think educationally you were unprepared or like mentorship or? Um, educationally. Yeah. I mean, the the special education masters I had spanned pre-K to grade eight. Um, okay. None of that really focused on specific disabilities and especially not autism. Um, it's a very broad um, spectrum of not only curriculum you think pre-k to eight curriculum is a is a lot to to go over and then um you know it primarily focused on how you would modify curriculum but modifying curriculum is different than being an effective teacher Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. something i've noticed too and dominique i cut you off do you want to go ahead i forgot what i was gonna say very convenient. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I I sometimes feel like we conflate caring with being a good practitioner or being a good teacher. Yeah. I care so much about the kids. I'm a good teacher. I will care more about my staff. I will be a good BCBA. And don't get me wrong, caring, like you said, Kate, was something that motivated you to pursue a more excellent, <laughs> I guess, behavior for yourself. But generally, I think it needs to be more than just caring about the kids. And uh, this is where I kind of go back and forth between the the debate about if teachers should get paid more. Me too. I always say prove it. Yeah. <laughs> like mm-hmm. prove why we should pay you more. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But then it's also a matter of like how are you going to quantify that? If the if they want to get paid more, we're going to use something like a performance-based pay. How yeah. are we going to assess that performance? Exactly. Are we going to use caring? <laughs> right. But then also then definitely no one's going to want to work with the special ed kids, the ESE True. kids. Because yeah. their performance is, they're not going to meet the state standards. Heck, a lot of them are absolved from even needing to do the state assessments. Yeah. So then how do we assess them equally the same way we would assess other teachers in terms of their performance? Based on progress. 
certain amount of progress. Okay, so so here's a, a big bone to pick that I have with the education system. Okay. In what universe would a BCBA be allowed at an authorization for an insurance company to put satisfactory as the only data for that six months of work? Yeah. You're working yeah. with a kid for, you know, IEP is broken up into four quarters. So mm -hmm. essentially you're working with them for, you know, three or four months based on the school year, if you do ESY. And you have this goal that you have set up, a long-term goal. And all you put is satisfactory. <laughs> and that's the only data they need on the IEP. Yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like the most vague, haphazard kind of mishmash. Mm-hmm. System it's so subjective together. and like, oh yeah, well, we collect the data. We've got a TA, we've got percentage of opportunity. Uh, show me the data, mm -hmm. show it to me. Well, it's an S. Oh, okay. I trust you. Cause yeah, you care. That's all that matters. You care. So therefore caring care, is synonymous yeah. with satisfaction. I give you a C for caring. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Kate, as a former teacher, what are your thoughts on this in terms of um, increasing pay? Yeah. You're representing all right? teachers, Kate. Yes. Your voice well, let's matters. I know that I'm not a teacher anymore <laughs> and haven't been. I, I left the field of teaching in 2015. Uh, so, oh, so okay. I've been out of the game for a little while um, because it sucks. <laughs> um, as far as being yeah. more, I mean, uh, the variety of pay across the nation is is crazy. I mean, there is a huge difference. I mean, in yeah. Massachusetts, after working for, you know, five, six, seven mm -hmm. years, you can make, depending on the district you work in and, and you're assuming you're continuing to advance your education. I mean, you can be making $80,000 like very easily without mm -hmm. even kind of maxing out the, um, your years of employment. Um, and so that sure. is a very respectable salary. I mean, Massachusetts is one of the most expensive states to live in. Um, so you have to, you know, compare that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are also schools in the South, especially that pay their teachers dirt. Very handsomely. <laughs> um, and so when it comes to paying them more, um, I will say that at least over the last few years that I was teaching, the number of responsibilities were compounding every year. There was more and more that mm -hmm. you were expected to do. Um, with, like what kind of um, So, for example, teachers, um, it, I don't know if this is nationwide or if this is just a Massachusetts thing, were required to um, form PLCs, professional learning communities, and you were required to mm. meet with your, it, it was typically a group of maybe three or four people, um, and you're essentially completing a like a research project throughout the school year to be presented um, to the district. And this was hmm. on your own time, essentially, um, or you had to utilize your prep periods to do it. Um, depending on the school you work in, you might have to hand all your lesson plans in ahead of time to um, your principal to be reviewed, um, meeting mandatory meetings with parents. Um, there was just all these extra kind of responsibilities and less time to get them done. Um, the district I worked in, um, okay. as a preschool teacher, I was required to do evaluations of incoming, um, three-year-olds. So once they age out of early intervention, they automatically, um, are eligible to be evaluated to be taken over by, by the public school. Um, I didn't get extra time to write those reports or to or to um, score those assessments. I had to just get it done mm -hmm. when I could get it done. And this is also while 
teaching a, a classroom. <laughs> Um, and no extra yeah. pay was added for these things. And, and some of these responsibilities are not things that teachers in other schools had to do. If you're a second grade regular mm. ed teacher, you're not doing special education evaluations. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that sense, I still, I am just going to be an asshole here. I still am very conflicted, mostly because, again... We have our job description. There are responsibilities written into any job description. Over time, naturally, I think positions evolve and and the need for certain things evolves. So there should kind of be an understanding that things will be added. But like going off of what you said, Kate, that sounds like an unreasonable addition. So I guess then it becomes like, well, what is reasonable if it's still outside of your the duties of your job but it should be an expectation that we're also going to gradually take new responsibilities on well i think a lot of teachers does that make any sense are not very good uh, boundary setters (laughs) either i mean when i was first Mm -hmm. um even when i was student teaching i remember that the classroom teacher would be in the building until like six o'clock at night um And after, you know, my first year teaching, I was definitely there more because I had, you know, more setup kind of to do. Um, But after that year, I vowed to walk out of that building at my contractual time every single day and not give a fuck. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because I didn't care. (laughs) I cared during my contractual hours, believe me. But um, I was not going to set a precedent that I was going to be there all night. Um, that's a big reason why these extra responsibilities keep getting added because teachers continue to get them done. Yeah. Dominique. I have, I have a question about that. I don't know. Maybe it's like, you know, teachers going into the field have like a false expectation of what they're walking into, but maybe that, but, um, I, you know, I think, millions of Americans come home or stop working, you know, past six every day. And like, I don't know, I've heard teachers say that too. Like, oh my gosh, I'm in this classroom, like after six, like doing so much work. Like, I think maybe that's just an American culture thing. We're, we, we value work and working and we're like, we're a work heavy culture. And so like, I kind of see when, when current teachers are like, you know, all this work and I'm like, I mean, I don't know. I would say like, yeah, you're working. Like, I mean, <laughs> like you're supposed to Talk work, Buttercup. like right. you're, you're, working and work. you're working past six and maybe you don't want to work past six, which, which is totally fair. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe, I mean, I'm just thinking about like, you know, my dad or my mom or, you know, people, adults, you know, when I was a kid, like it, it's not uncommon for them to come home past, you know, past five. Yeah. And like you, I don't know, are you guys the uh, fans of The Office? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like there was one episode where, um, what's her name? The the lady with the two uh, Great Danes come in. I forget her name. I think you guys oh, know what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, yeah. Played by Kathy Bates, right? Kathy Bates, right. And, um, and you know, Michael was like, okay, I'm going to go home. Catch you later. And she was like, okay, that's fine. Do you feel like you've done enough work today? And he's like, uh, oh. And then he, like, goes and thinks, <laughs> thinks about it. And it's almost like as an adult with a career, like, 
you are in charge of your work. And so, like, you get to allocate that. And, like, that's that's work. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, but, but along the same lines, if you have, like Caleb was talking, if you have a job description, yes. within yeah. the bounds of that job description, you should be doing your work. Oh, sure. From talking to teachers, I first of all, I have a really big problem with, we have a problem, let's throw money at it. Because I don't think money is going to solve the problem. If you talk to teachers that are overworked and underpaid and all the all the buzzwords, most of the time people leave a school or they leave the field because they're unsupported. Yeah. Their admin is breathing down their neck. They have they have a contractual obligation of twenty kids and they have twenty seven kids in the class. Like you could probably pay that teacher yeah. fifty thousand more dollars. They're still going to burn the fuck out. Yeah, like that's that's untenable. So rather than saying we should pay them more, I think we should allocate that money better to support them, mm-hmm. maybe give them the resources that they need, give them the training to go to a conference and hire a substitute for the day so they can get training on reduction of behavior. Mm-hmm. Send them to an ABA conference, send them to, you know, if they're, if they're passionate about dyslexia, they can go and become a dyslexia expert for their district. And then that yeah. can be that can be following their passion and then maybe can spring more of them into other things and not just, Oh, we're going to give you a tuition stipend and then you'll be able to raise up another step because now you have your, your fifth year or your master's or whatever comes from that. So yeah, we should all do our job and we should all work. I don't mind doing a training at nine o'clock at night for RBTs because I love my job. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and there were times where I was doing trainings for RBTs and I wasn't getting paid for it, but Mm -hmm. I loved my job. Right. And that's what I thought was reasonable. And, you know, if you're grading papers, you signed up for that. If mm-hmm. you're, you know, wiping snotty noses for preschoolers, you kind of signed up for that, even though they probably didn't teach you how to do that in grad school. But it's all this extra stuff like yeah. research projects. That's a really big responsibility. That is 27 kids over your 20 kids. No paras. You're getting your ass literally kicked every day and you have no support from an admin. And all they do is say, you know, work harder. And what about the IEP? Mm-hmm. It's like That's the thing that I think we need to focus on the support for these people, because no one got into teaching for the money. They got into teaching because they want to be a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. That's good a good point. point. That's a good point. Um, Kate, what are the enrollment? You talked about a decline in enrollment for people going into teaching. Yeah. So it was already, yeah, it was already at a pretty big decline, um, from between 2010 and 2019. And that's before the pandemic. Um, yeah, not, not great. Um, give me a sec, pop pop back to me in one second while I get, get our little stats here. Okay, this is something where we say, yeah. Kate, drop that shit. <laughs> oh, you got a, you got a motto. I like it. You I like it, right? Drop nice. that shit. I like it too. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to go with that one. So in terms of the the decrease in people going into teaching, rightfully so, I could never do it. I have friends who are teachers. I honestly nothing about it is appealing to me. Uh, I've seen more people <laughs> I've seen more people opt for what is this? The concept of homeschooling as well as unschooling have you are you guys familiar with this term not unschooling i cannot wait to hear about unschooling yes so i'll i'll give you the homeschooling which is i think we all know but i want to use it as a contrast to unschooling so Mm -hmm. homeschooling you know the kids are obviously home they're educated at home parents typically use some sort of homeschooling curriculum or they they loosely go by the guidelines of you know in illinois we have common core or you know Mm -hmm. whatever the subjects are unschooling 
is, I'm just going to read this verbatim. It is an educational philosophy that relies on a child's innate curiosity and desire to learn. So it's very similar, like Montessori, the child led teaching and the un part is aimed at trying to strip them of all of the compliance based learning that they did, that they had learned possibly in a public school setting. Yeah, because our society loves non-compliance. Yeah. Yeah. We love it. Yeah. Put your hands up. No, I'm not going to do that. I don't feel like doing it today because, mm-hmm. you know, not God in school taught me to, to follow my follow my passion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Kate, drop that shit for us. Enrollment <laughs> in teacher prep programs has declined by between 22 to 29 percent uh, between 2010 and 2019. So... That's a pretty big, that's a pretty significant drop. I mean, that's like a fifth to a third of people not I'm sure it's gotten better though. Teaching. I'm sure COVID and the way that we dealt with that entire thing in the educational system totally. drove people to become teachers. I think so too. I think t- forcing all of them to learn how to teach in a completely different modality within 24 hours mm-hmm. was really the cherry on top. That was definitely a hard sell. <laughs> and deal with kids that now have a regression in their social skills and speech and yeah. parents that are breathing down their necks even more because they feel like they're armed with all sorts of knowledge because they watch the YouTube video and follow this person yeah. on TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a better. Because school was just Here's so great, unsafe. Great. Right? Are, are we, can we get into this? Can we get into so, this? Uh, more than half of the teachers in the National Education Association in 2021 said they were more likely to quit or retire early because of ongoing job stress, a.k.a. the, the pandemic. So more than half were ready to quit. Mm. Wait, how many? What was the percentage? Half. What was the half. percentage, Kate? More than half. Half. Oh. oh. Okay, so let's, let's look into the future of this. I don't personally see... Uh, th- that percentage going up. I don't see any reason why people would ever want to pursue teaching, especially in these like <laughs> following these last two to three years. And this could just be cynical me. So please feel free to jump in at any time. Um, this being said, and with a lot of educational institutions being captured by ideology now too, what, what do we make of public education and teachers. I mean, do you honestly see this as something that will kind of become a moot point? Like, will it even be a necessary career? I think it's, people have, we cannot agree on the role of a teacher, I think, or the role of education in America. Like, I think, you know, I think uh, some, groups of people nowadays believe that it should be more institutionalized, not institutionalized, but like more, um, uh, more, more regulated. Like the Mm -hmm. curriculum should be like, everyone should be taught sex education from the age of four up. Um, for example, and, and they view it as, it's because not every child has a, a, you know, a privileged home life and not every child would, will get the same opportunities to be taught these things. And so we should have a, you know, a public system that grants children equal education throughout the nation. Um, but um, I think the other side um people think that parents should be in charge and they should they should dictate what is taught to kids or what what is taught to their kids right and they have the right 
But I also don't, I don't know if I agree with that either, because I do yeah. see it as everyone should have equal opportunity. Or I'm getting into scary territory there. That's what we're but here for. Go for it. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, like everyone, like kids should not be um, punished by, or they should have all the opportunities they can to mm-hmm. be educated sufficiently. And I think perhaps maybe that is what public education can and should provide, but we're not doing it efficiently, one. Can it even be done, two? I don't know. And should it be done, really? Because is it the parents' rights? Like, I don't know. I I, I have all these questions about it. Yeah, you brought up a good question, a good point, Dominique. And I was uh-huh. reading an article about this recently, and I... God, I cannot remember where it came from. If when I find if when I find it, I will link it in the show notes. They essentially were asking teachers, what is the overall goal of yeah. education? So do do we want to prepare them just to get a job or do we want to create well-rounded people that could contribute to society? And some would argue, well, contributing to society does to some degree mean that you work in some sort of career. Mm-hmm. Um but I guess the argument becomes, are we just wanting to teach very specific job ready skills or do we want to just create resilient, critical thinking people who then take these skills and go down the road? Kate, you're shaking your head. Um, so <laughs> f- more, you guys are finding out all kinds of fun facts about me. Um, actually, I have a master's <laughs> degree in curriculum. Um, and okay. so wow. one of the really interesting things that I took out of that was that curriculum design, you know, schools are publicly funded, right? They're ultimately run by the government. And what is taught in schools is what suits the current needs of society. And so that's why you see such an ebb and flow with um, vocational technical education, things like, you know, home ec, um, these other uh, Mm -hmm. not necessarily college course um, offerings in schools. And it it comes and goes with whatever society is needing. So if we need more doctors and lawyers, we see more push for that um, more, you know, math, math, science, English must pass, MCAS must uh, get into a good college, Mm. get a high SAT score focus. And when we're lacking in our trades, right, where we need more, more uh, plumbers and architects and uh, mechanics and whatnot, we see an influx of that push into our schools. Mm. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, because education is ultimately to serve society, right? Would we all agree on that? I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think then that makes sense. Now, the other question is, what do children have, you know, is it a right for children to, to, to know a certain amount of things with each age? Like, I, I think, you know, some people want to say that education is a right. Mm-hmm. I think it is for kids. I think so. I think it is a, a right. And like, so then I don't think you can quantify a right. I think yeah, it's just their not. access to that would be well, the, would I be the right. Should they, should they have access to? 
absolutely uh, proper education. Yeah, right. Okay, so we can yeah, but I don't think but I don't think having it go to a certain like their right is they need to know their times tables by the time they're at a third grade. Well, that's the their question, right is to right? be exposed like, to it. Yeah. 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 So comparing this to unschooling, part of unschooling is that if we're following the child's motivation and everything is very much child directed, essentially the child is the one that chooses what they learn. Now this poses the issue similar to child-led therapy and any sort of child-led approach. How does a child know what is best for them and what's in their best interest? Um, but then coming from the other side and playing devil's advocate, schools teach a lot of things that are absolutely useless. So where, where's, I guess, where's the, the balance so there? So I, I've attended every type of school in existence, uh, with the exception of officially being homeschooled. I've attended charter schools. I've attended mm -hmm. Catholic schools. I've attended public schools. I've attended Montessori school. I've attended a super hippy dippy, uh, yeah. elementary school. Um, and mm -hmm. one of the ways that balance was found in this kind of probably as close to almost unschooling in a structured, you know, school environment gets is, and I still remember this because it's one of the most valuable skills I, I ever gained. Um, as a third grader, every month you had to complete a special interest project. And so of course you got to mm. choose whatever mm. that special interest was. We would go to sure. the public library every uh, once a week to research whatever your special interest project was. So we would take out books, you could get magazines, videos, whatever, newspaper clippings, whatever you could find. And then you had to present your special interest project to the class at the end of the month. And you could do that in whatever format you wanted. You could make a poster board, you could film a video, you could bring in a guest speaker, you could have show and tell items, whatever it was that you, um, wanted to to use to kind of present your special interest project and so lots of valuable skills there right being able to research being able to public speak mm -hmm. being able to gather sources um but the topic was up to you okay see yeah so i love the framework of special interest and i actually did this with my students um, at the university, but in terms of the topic, this time was like an adversarial project. So that this kind of keeps them from only researching things and only sourcing things that they're really interested in and only things that they really like. I think that is the balance between allowing for us to, to, I guess, capitalize on our interests in the, in the intellectual sense, but then also paying mind to all of the things that we disagree with or things that we're not even interested in. Yeah. yeah, you have to generalize those skills because there's going to be a time where you're going to have to swallow a pill that you don't like at mm -hmm. work and you're not always going to be able to do something that's in your special interest. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you generalize the skills that you learned in third grade at the Montessori school on your special interest project on Rainbow Friends <laughs> and then have that go and relate to when you're 25 and you have to work on a group project at your law firm? Yeah. So, yeah. I mm -hmm. totally agree with that. I think that's the value of maybe um, coursework that isn't useful, but it, it does. That's I true. People don't like this, but it, it it shows it teaches kids compliance, like mm -hmm. and compliance. 
I feel like it's a dirty word. I know. Like, I'm even struggling. I don't know with it. why. But, like, I don't know why. You're so right. Because it life requires compliance. And it's a skill that kids need to learn. Mm-hmm. And so, God damn it, I'll say it loud and Compliance. I had a conversation with my son uh, probably a couple weeks ago. And he's extremely combative. Mm-hmm. He likes, not physically combative, but he's verbally combative. He always likes to question. Mm-hmm. And I tried to break it down to him in a way that he could understand. And I said, buddy, first you need to learn how to do something. So you need to be compliant when someone's trying to teach you to do something. And then you can figure out how to do it better or how to do it differently. And so you mm. can then have a conversation rather than just, no, I'm not going to do that. Because you might not even understand why you're saying no. Yeah. You need to understand what's being asked of you. You need to understand the reason it's being asked. Question it. That's totally fine. Make people explain themselves, but then do it the way that they want and then improve upon it if you can. Yeah. And he sat with that like his little seven-year-old brain could for as long as possible. And then he wanted to talk about something else. But I, I think the message is is good. It's like you have to start with compliance mm-hmm. because if you're just non-compliant, you're also then never going to learn anything. If you yeah. just yeah. fight and only stay yeah. in your comfort zone, you're not going to learn anything. You have to learn the rules to break the rules, essentially. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So that being said, while we're on the topic of breaking rules, one would argue that, and when I say one, I'm mostly referring to me. <laughs> I would argue that as you are entering um, either your bachelor's degree or even a master's degree, those should be really great times where you learn civil discourse. You learn how to really get into the thick and the weeds of um, dissecting any sort of, I guess, topic or information that you're presented with. And this is a really uh, prime time in your life where you learn how to work with people who might disagree with your point of view or defend your own point of view. Um, Do you guys feel like there should be more jobs available for people with just a bachelor's degree? That's a really hard question. I mean, I I think the value of a bachelor's degree has gone down, Mm -hmm. at least since like when my parents were pushing for bachelor's degrees um, for everyone and it was difficult to get, but now everyone and their brother has a bachelor's degree when you're out there and because it's been pushed for and I think we've achieved that now obviously there are people that don't have bachelor's degrees and they make a fine living mm-hmm. but I don't know what more like would they would they be able to be a BCBA like do you think that a bachelor's level education would be something that would be appropriate to be an administrator in a high school see would that's be, the thing think, I don't know be, would you be confident with a I don't know this per se but a bachelor's um, level architect designing a skyscraper, like so, a recent bachelor, yeah, like recently yeah. graduating from college, like having these roles where there's a lot of responsibility that falls on them. I don't necessarily think a degree yeah. is what makes you good at something. It's about how, sure. I guess, yeah. how you apply what you learn. I mean, That's I guess like the tie I, back to. As, as someone who has, you know, toggled back and forth about getting a PhD in the past. I've thought about, well, what, you know, what would the purpose of that degree be? And if it's just to gain knowledge, you can buy the textbooks. You can listen to There's the, le- you can listen to all the that. lectures. Yeah. You can get the same education mm-hmm. without paying for the, the degree itself. Right. Um, yeah. But, well, I mean, I think with, the, with that argument though, couldn't you say that like, there's no use in in teachers or professors like 
I mean, what I would say that a classroom environment, at least in higher education, or professors with you know years of knowledge, they mm-hmm. they add value, right, to the. See, I don't that, know. I go back and too. Yeah. See, that's where I start to get um, a little conflicted in my stance is yeah. I loved my program because it was all centered around discourse and debate. Now what I see, there is none of that. There is more of that compliance focused teaching. So the compliance that we talked about, the learning the rules to break them, college ideally would be a time to learn how to break some of these intellectual rules a little bit. Mm-hmm. I actually see more compliance um, from college professors and in people high up in academia than I think I see in elementary school. So, I mean, we're paying all of this money to be taught what? To just parrot a textbook? Yeah. I mean, so then I wonder, I, there's a there's a frequent debate going around here too, is, is college a waste of money? Well, it's, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that, honestly. I think sometimes you need a level of competency that you can prove with a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then other times your experience should be able to speak for itself. You know, I don't think that if you're in, if, let's say if you were a welder, if you went to the best welding school, mm-hmm. that you're necessarily going to be inherently better than a person that's been welding because their parents were welders and they've been welding since they were four years old. Like yeah. the skill is there. You've demonstrated the skill, regardless of what paper you have, you you've mm-hmm. demonstrated the skill better than this other person. Um, but there should be a level of, maybe it's a commitment thing. Maybe it's a level of like, you need a certain level of commitment and exposure Mm -hmm. before you pot commit and go all into this role. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the numbers. I don't know, Kate, if you could even find these, but like what are the numbers of people that start a program and Mm. don't go to it? I know, for example, I know somebody who owns an ABA company and they started pre-med and then they found ABA and they're like, F this noise, I'm going to ABA. (laughs) So yeah. they technically would have now if they had done self-learning and everything like that and they would have found it themselves, they might have actually gone the route of being a you know uncertified, uncredentialed doctor. Mm-hmm. But then they found ABA, so they switched it and they they went that route. And then they're very proficient and very skilled at what they do there. So I don't maybe that's the purpose of the degree is just to give you the exposure to figure out if you really like this or not. Well, it's I yeah. think it's also like <clears throat> we have to find a way to measure the value of education within a, you know, university program and how, like, you know, like how, um, and I don't know how we measure value. I'm thinking monetarily, but maybe you guys would disagree with that. In terms of like rate of investment? Yeah. Like like investment. Okay. Yeah. So like, um, you know, colleges, you go to a college, right? It costs the same amount, but different degree programs have different outcomes, right? And a thousand percent. Yeah. And different rates of, um, of, of value mm-hmm. from what you get. Like if, if, you know, I had a friend who was a vocal performance major Ooh, and what do you do with that? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, thankfully she didn't go in debt, but I think so many do. And then, but like, there's no way that that education, you know, is helping her pay back the, no. you know, what she learned. Um, yeah. So I think. I, yeah. Uh, so then, do we forgive her student loans then? 
that, I know. That's, exactly. Yeah, again, it's, it's like you're are you what are you contributing? And Kate, I sent you this screenshot from um Gad Sad, and I'm just gonna read it out loud because it's so oh, I funny. I do too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, for those of us that don't know Gad, he's very sarcastic, and this is sarcasm. Dear welders, corrections officers, and soldiers, please stop whining about paying the college debts of other people's kids who studied important fields such as women's studies, intersectionality, and feminist glaciology. Pick up an extra shift and pay your share, you you selfish whiners. (laughs) And it's it's funny because it's like we we don't want to restrict people from pursuing something that's interesting to them, but... If we're measuring, the government shouldn't subsidize that, though. Yeah, like, and then if we're also looking at, like, Kate, you said there's a forty percent college dropout rate. So, I mean, are people just kind of using this to tinker and figure out what they like, which is also fine. And then if we look at rate Mm -hmm. of investment, female feminist glaciology, or you know, even something like intersectionality, like what, what is or vocal? What was it? What even was that major vocal instruction? Um, vocal performance. Vocal performance. I mean, yeah. is she going to try she out for the singer. voice? I okay. Mean, yeah, like, <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it was crazy, but, um. That's four years of school. Sorry, I'm, I got to wrap my head around this. There's four <laughs> years of school at a university regarding vocal performance. Oh, yeah. That's a lot of money, too. So Well, so that's the, also elective, so that's true. Well, the hope well, of being... So I, I'm assuming if she's a singer, the hope would be that she would want to be a professional, like, performer? Or yeah, a, opera like, singer or, you know... Was I, one of the classes ventriloquism? Like, what are, what are they doing yeah. in terms of, like, the different vocal performances? Well, yeah. that's my thing with the arts. It's, like, something that it's, it's more, like, a skill-based you know, um, mm. affinity. And- yeah, should you even have a degree in that then? Right, yeah. Oh, oh, Kate, uh, we need to drop this shit um, or, or find it or something. Liberal arts, <laughs> so like like liberal arts, so like there's humanities, um, you know, there's like obviously like stuff like gender studies, but then the social sciences and education are amongst the top five degrees that pretty much the majority of students say they regret getting. Well, because you I have the, re- I have the regret stats. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, give, give us the regret stats. I had a great psychology, stats. but it was actually very similar amongst many. 77% of psychology majors said they had regrets. Um, it's actually, wow, it's and, and I think we all know this without really saying it, but psychology without a uh, master's degree or a PhD is the bachelor's itself yeah. is um, pretty useless, and it's down there with art mm-hmm. and music, philosophy, and religion for uh, poorest return on investment for a bachelor's degree. This is the other thing. Like it, so I think uh, Sam Harris said something like this. I always joke that like I don't believe in God, but Sam Harris is my God. <laughs> I can but, dig um, that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so he said something along the lines of like, when you pay for something, um, you know, for example, if you pay for a sandwich, you pay the price of a sandwich and then you don't, you, you eat half of it, but you still have the value of the other half. That's the thing. These, these students are going into higher education and maybe realizing it's not fit for them, you Mm -hmm. know, or whatever. And they're throwing all of this money at these institutions and then but the thing is if you leave before you graduate there's zero value yeah there's zero return on investment Mm -hmm. um 
and you know maybe that should there was like this program I don't know where it was like out in Colorado or something where like um students were able to test run schools and oh. like you know um I don't know if it was like a nonprofit or something like that but like um they got to do the first year and then choose whether or not they wanted to continue um and so yeah I don't know I think that's another problem to it so big question here big unanswered truth since the four of us work in the same field do we work in a field that people don't want to work in anymore I don't know I just got here I like it Dominique is still... Except she, for the teachers. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> She's still untainted by uh, by the stuff in the field. Kate and Adam, you guys have been in the field for, for a long time as BCBAs. What the number of think? certificates is only growing. So, you know, it's not taking... Yeah, yeah. it's... it's Astronomically. Too, too much, in my opinion. But um, it's certainly not showing any signs of slowing down and um, seeing more and more higher education um, colleges and universities adding behavior analysis to their, you know, programs where it, it never existed before. Um, yeah. And so that has to be indicative of mm -hmm. more people wanting it. Do you think that has I to think do with more people go ahead, Adam, I cut you off. I think more people want to work in the field. I just don't think they want to work in, in the, the field. field. <laughs> That's like they want to be a BCBA, but you don't want to be a working BCBA that's going to yes. deal with everything that comes across. Like you should, I can't tell you how many times people have conversations with me about, I don't think I'm competent to do X, Y, and Z. I go, how do you not think you're competent to do like work with a kid that's mildly aggressive? Like, yeah. well, I don't know how to restrain people. Like you don't have to like just think outside the box a little bit. Like you understand functions of behavior, you right. understand antecedent manipulation, you understand how to parent train, you know how to train RBTs, and anything you don't have, I'll help you with. Like don't say you can't take this client because you're not competent. Yeah, I'm not asking you to do like a super complicated, you know, FA mm -hmm. or be participating in this research study. So this is this is the job. The job is this. Yep. So if you're not ready to do that. As an RBT, as a BCBA, as a BCABA, then you're not ready to work in this field. You're ready to, you know, hang a shingle or put your diploma up and say you're a BCBA or whatever credentials. Everybody you wants to be a gangster working. until it's time to yeah. do gangster shit. That's very true. <laughs> do you okay? So here's what I, I and I don't know that the this would be impossible to find because it would rely on self-report. But I wonder if people that go into helping professions similar to ours and with this astronomical increase in people pursuing a BCBA credential, I wonder how much of that has to do with a little bit of what Adam said. Like, I want to sit in an office and be a BCBA. That doesn't work. And seeing that the salary for a lot of BCBA positions is almost double of other helping professions like social work, shitty pay. Um, LPCs, unless you're in private practice, that's pretty shitty pay too. And you have caseloads of, you know, sometimes upwards of 40 clients. Yeah. So I would just yeah, wonder how much that, that has to do why, with it. Why, why, why are we paid so much? I actually wonder that too. Insurance. I don't know why. <laughs> a lot of times. Insurance? Like, I don't know even how it works. Yeah, but other fields, I, well, this is hard too, because other fields, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And then there's also the argument uh, are we are we exploiting kids because of this volume? No other field that works with children 
mm-hmm. authorizes the sorts of hours that, or requests the sorts of hours that we do. And that's going away. I'm glad it's going away. And some people seem to be upset that it's going away. It's going away. We had a whole huge conversation for about an hour and a half last night as an organization um, about how they're cracking down on progress reports and hours that you're requesting. And they're, they're setting out very specific, which I love, metrics and um, requirements for progress with your clients. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get it, gone, I think, are the days very soon of partial denials. You requested 20, we'll give you 10. No, you requested 20, you get nothing. And mm-hmm. you have to fight. You might have to go to a fair hearing. You might have to legitimately fight on the phone and try to get these services for these kids. And I think that's good and bad. It's good because it kind of weeds out the people that are overprescribing, but sure. it's bad because it just puts a limit, like 20 and above, we're going to question it and we're going to yeah. make them jump through hoops mm-hmm. for the people that are actually good practitioners. Kate, what's it called? Um because I heard this last year and I wasn't sure when this would happen. Um, insurance or the field as a whole is wanting to go more towards, is it values-based care versus, I forget the name of it, but it's it's a very specific system of how so, hours will be I don't know if this is the um, same and I don't authorized. know if this is unique to just certain insurance companies, but we're seeing a lot of them use um, what's called interqual um, as their... Um, Basically, the reviewer sits in front of a computer and they input, you know, whatever pieces of your request, you know, essentially child's functioning level, um, hour, number of hours requested, number of um, behaviors for reduction, number of acquisition, blah, 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 child's age, number of years receiving ABA therapy. And mm-hmm. the computer spits out whether or not the uh, criteria are met to meet the requested number of hours. And so it completely kind of dehumanizes yes. yeah, yeah. the um the you know clinical rationale, clinical judgment or the review process and kind of boils it down to putting data into a computer system. And so this is kind of like this secretive mm. um formula or algorithm and we once actually got a hold of the flowchart that um, kind of helps determine eligibility and figured out that if the child was over the age of 13, there was no way to make the interqual data spit out that the child was eligible to receive services. Yeah. Mm. I've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe I'm thinking about wow. some because I've never heard of interqual. So I I googled the values based care. This was March of um, last year was the updated, I guess, definition or criteria, whatever you want to call it. Value based care is a form of reimbursement that ties payments for care delivery to the quality of care provided and rewards providers for both efficiency and effectiveness. So they would have to see some proof of progress, but then that poses the, the a whole slew of other problems too, if there are any benefits to that, which would hold people accountable, we would assume. Um, but we also can't force progress. I mean, some kids just aren't fits for certain types of therapy or any, not even a kid, a client for that matter. So that would be unfortunate to see no progress being made. And then what people just aren't reimbursed for, for that How would time? that work if you were in like a doctor 
if you were in a doctor's yeah, office, yeah, and exactly. Value based care. Like I come in because I'm sick, and I keep getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and mm-hmm. I die. Like, th- yeah. is that because the doctor was ineffective and they shouldn't be recompensated for their services? Right. Like it takes right. it takes time to figure out a kid's behaviors. Hmm. Yeah, and this is this is really the nitty gritty of healthcare. And sometimes I wonder why I went into healthcare because <laughs> because You're of these reasons. You're probably a masochistic. Uh, probably, I think to to go into something like this and and want to work with the the types of I guess behaviors that a lot of us want to address and are interested in, there would have to be some degree of masochism, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, not in like a, a pathological sense, but I think it also no. takes a very specific person to actually find this type of work uh, both interesting and rewarding or sustainable. You like a challenge, yeah. 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 That is a hundred percent true. I like to solve problems. I like puzzles. And this is what I do every day is I solve behavior puzzles. Yeah. Yeah. Plus we care guys. We care. And that's, what's most important. We do care. Sometimes (laughs) I feel like caring is a detriment to my my practice. You know, it's me too. But I don't know. I think what you were saying, the, the, you know, measuring quality or progress and effectiveness. I think that needs to be considered, but how? It's so hard. Yeah, because there's not every single client that you work with is going to make progress. And that doesn't, in some cases, that will be the fault of the practitioner. And in others, it'll be due to a million other factors that have nothing to do with the clinician. So all those phase lines that you get to put in your graphs. They look so nice. Yeah, I'm exactly. so excited to put in phase lines. <laughs> Dominique over here is like <laughs> a, a young buck who still is excited about what we're doing. And the rest of us are like, oh, fucking phase lines. Fucking phase change lines. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that shit. Well, this has been an eye-opening conversation. Do you guys have any other last thoughts about where we're at clinically, educationally, both before we uh, finish with the kids are not all right? We are in in deep waters. We got to get out. Also, I agree. Right? Like, yeah. Some teachers are good. That's my. Final we had story. to finish. <laughs> <laughs> we had to make sure we threw that in there. We did. Listen, Dominique. The teachers that you're working with who don't like you, they're not going to make it to the end of this podcast. No, no, they're no, not no. going to hear that statement. Not- so you're, not gonna be like, you're the one that I was talking about at the end. You're the sub teachers. Yeah, <laughs> we can edit that in the beginning. <laughs> we no, can tell you what do you think about teachers? Keep it, in. Keep it in. Yeah, this is a natural flow. This is how life works, you know. Well, yeah. on that note, thank you guys for joining me today. I appreciate all of you, and I look forward to the hundreds of conversations <laughs> we will have following this one. Hey. Woo-hoo. All right. See you guys. <laughs>